I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, my name's Bryony Gordon and welcome to this special mini-series of Mad World, which is coming not from the super swish high-tech studios in the Telegraph offices, but my bedroom. Yes, I'm sitting here at my dressing table, surrounded by laundry, and you may hear a small child come in and demand for me to restart Frozen 2 in a moment. But let me explain why we've decided to bring back Mad World. When we first launched this podcast back in 2017, the tagline was, because it's really, really normal to feel weird. And today, in the midst of the greatest public health crisis of a generation, that tagline feels more apt than ever. And this public health crisis is also a mental health crisis, because in times of fear and uncertainty, anxiety blooms. So we wanted to get together a few guests, a few episodes that might bring you comfort while you're locked down in your houses and homes. Now, on previous series, we've always kicked off with someone very well-known or famous. So we've had Prince Harry, Stephen Fry, Mel B. But this series, it didn't feel right to start with a celebrity or a high-profile person. But we wanted to start this series of the podcast with the real stars of the show. And that's the frontline healthcare workers who are keeping this country going during the coronavirus crisis. Katie and Natalie are nurses who were part of the British response to the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa back in 2014. Now, back in the UK, they're at the front line battling coronavirus. They very kindly found time in their busy schedules to chat to me about what their experiences in Sierra Leone have taught them and also to provide advice for other doctors and nurses who might be struggling during these unprecedented times. Ladies, I am so grateful for you guys finding the time to come and be my first guests on this mini series of Mad World, Katie and Natalie. And I'm going to ask you how you are really in a moment, because that's the first question that we ask every guest. But also, would you describe for me a bit about what your job entails? So perhaps should we go with Natalie? How are you really? Hello. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. So my job, I'm an I'm a infection prevention nurse. Um, in the NHS. So I work in a team of other infection prevention nurses in the community hospital. And 
my job basically involves preventing the spread of infection. <laughs> so it's a busy time for us at the moment. So it's been really, yeah, it's been really intense at the moment. And you are actually, you've been in work all week, but you're now self-isolating, is that right? Yeah, so um, I had Thursday and Friday as days off anyways, annual leave days, but um, Friday I started to get a cough. I feel okay though, I'm not too unwell, but I am, yeah, doing the sensible thing and self-isolating at the moment, so um, I apologise in advance if I cough during It's okay, we'll we'll, we'll (laughs) let you off, Natalie, I think you're allowed that. Thank you. (laughs) Katie, how are you really? And also, who are you really? (laughs) Oh, who am I really? Well, um, so I'm a community mental health nurse and I work in a specialist community team. And how am I? Um, I think it really it's really fluctuating at the moment, but pretty much I'm good at the moment. I've been on annual leave all week. So been keeping my head down, been doing some Joe Wicks work, workouts, um, been trying to really look after myself before I go back to work. So before we come to the current crisis, I wanted to talk to you both about your work in Sierra Leone back in 2014 as part of the British response to the Ebola outbreak. Now, obviously, Ebola is a completely different illness. It's far more deadly, I think, if I'm right in saying, but in that respect, it's actually far less contagious. But I wondered if you could just talk us through what it was like working in Sierra Leone at that time when there was you know it was a it was a huge crisis yeah I mean there's so many ways to describe it the first thing that comes to mind is it was really intense I don't know what you were going to say Katie but like I just felt like it was all consuming and really intense and um yeah just quite overwhelming and yeah I think you're absolutely right and I think in similar ways to what's happening now that that was life everything revolved around Ebola what what was the situation like out there if you could sort of describe what the symptoms are describe the hospitals that you were working in that kind of thing yeah sure so the symptoms of Ebola tend to be fever it can be diarrhea, vomiting, and then more serious stages like uh, hemorrhaging and things. So it's transmitted via body fluids. So vomit, diarrhea, sweat, saliva, sexual secretions, all those kind of things. So it's different from COVID-19 in that it's not a respiratory illness, um, which is why, as you said, coronavirus is more transmittable than, than Ebola. However, like you said, it's also significantly more deadly. And there was a huge amount of infections uh, where we were in Sierra Leone. There was also several infections in Liberia and Guinea. But Katie and I were based in the main government uh, hospital in the capital city. So a really big hospital. And the organisation we work for, King Sierra Leone Partnership, worked with the local hospital to set up a holding centre. So people who had symptoms were admitted there and assessed there and tested for Ebola there. Okay, and tell me about the, the condition of the people and the condition of the hospital pretty basic from for me coming from having never been to that part of the world before and um coming from a uk hospital i was it was quite shocking but after time i kind of realized that actually we just need to have the right systems in place and we can still get things safe but yeah um it was significantly more basic than we're used to in the uk what kind of situations were you having to deal with and what kind of decisions were you having to make because i know that there is a lot of talk right now of doctors and nurses having to make choices and this is currently in the UK of doctors and nurses potentially having to make choices that they would never expect to have to make so what were the kind of decisions you were having to make in Sierra Leone? You know the hospitals were completely overwhelmed and ours was no different from that and so uh, we had scores of people coming to the hospital every day and we only had a very limited amount of beds 
So the first decisions that we had to make was whether to um, admit them or not, or whether we could admit them or not. And we would, like you said, triage people and assess whether they had symptoms of um, Ebola. And then if they did, if we had a bed available, decide who out of all of those people who have come to the hospital, who we should take in to that bed. So that was a really difficult decision because we would maybe be able to take one out of 20 people that arrived. Um, And however, it wasn't like we were then going to save them because actually, like you said, there was a a really high death rate. It really just meant that they would perhaps pass away in a bed, then pass away on the bench or on the floor outside the hospital. My God. It was a really dire situation. So also inside the unit, again, people were very, very unwell and we only had a limited amount of staff and we were extremely busy. And so it would really be difficult to give all the attention you needed to give to people. You only had a certain, a limited amount of equipment, a limited amount of medications you could give, and also a limited amount of contact that you're allowed to have with patients because, um, as I said, Ebola is transmitted via contact with their bodily fluids. So you can't be doing unnecessary contact, like maybe comforting them in the way that you would want to. So I think, yeah, some of the decisions were really, really difficult, particularly around um, palliative care and how we looked after people who were dying. We in the UK, we're very, very good, very, very good at palliative care and we give them a lot of attention and we give them a certain array of drugs and um, spend a lot of time with them and their family. We couldn't really do any of those things during Ebola. And so I often felt that the, the care that we gave to the dying was so much less than I wanted to, such a lesser standard than I wanted to give. And I think those things can be really difficult. Mm. Katie, you're a mental health nurse. What were you doing out in Sierra Leone? Um, So I got to Sierra Leone in the March of 2014. So there was Ebola in the area, mostly in um, Liberia and Guinea at that stage. And it wasn't until a couple of months later that the first cases were uh, seen in Sierra Leone. So I was going out there to support the mental health programme for King Sierra Leone Partnership, supporting mental health where we could. And then... When Ebola came along, so that was it got to Freetown three months after I first got to Sierra Leone. Freetown's the capital of Sierra Leone. Yeah, Freetown's the capital. So it's on on the um, west coast of the country and Ebola came in through the east eastern side of the country. So it moved across the country. So it got there at the end of, got to Freetown at the end of June. And I think by then we'd already made the decision as an organisation that we would support the hospital we were working with to develop some kind of response to the outbreak. It started off just with the a side room um, near the main entrance of the hospital where they had a few cholera beds and creating I think a two bedroom unit at that stage, thinking that that might be enough to um, if we got any cases in Freetown. And I think very quickly that then developed to six beds. And then I think it ended up with 18 beds. So it grew um, in quite a short space of time. So when people with symptoms um, that could indicate they had Ebola came to the hospital, they would somewhere to isolate them away from everyone else in the hospital, which was still functioning as a hospital and to be tested at that stage, I think it was taking about a week to get the results from the tests back. So people were having to stay in the isolation unit with potentially other people that were sick if they weren't sick, um, waiting for the tests to come back. And then once they were tested positive, they'd be moved to a treatment centre. And at the beginning, there were only tre- two treatment centres quite 
quite a distance from Freetown. So they were having to travel for hours and hours to get to a treatment centre. And I think within a couple of weeks, they filled up. So we then became a bit more of a treatment centre as well, um, with the limited beds we had. It seems like such a silly question to be asking to nurses who, who worked treating Ebola patients. But would you say that the experience was quite traumatic? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was definitely traumatised. While I was out there and when I came back, I found it hugely traumatic. Yeah. First of all, we were in a completely different setting to the UK. So I'd never been to a country like Sierra Leone before. And so I think that was overwhelming. And then arriving in a country that was going in the grip of an epidemic where there was a lot of fear. And then just the day to day work that we were doing was it was just a dire situation that we were in. We were in on a full on um, humanitarian disaster. And so dealing with that and the amount of deaths that I mean, there were people on the unit probably dying every one or two hours it was just consistent over you know months and months of that and then as I mentioned earlier just the the decisions about who you would care for and who you wouldn't I think I found personally the most traumatizing thing I think that stayed with me for quite a long time after I left um, and I found quite difficult to deal with. It's, It's obviously they are different illnesses and different settings but what would you take from that experience that if there are any doctors or nurses listening now who are anywhere in the world having to deal with overflowing IC intensive care units, people coming in with this, with with COVID-19, what would your advice be for dealing with these decisions that you're going to have to make? Because, you know, obviously the doctors and nurses are, are working on, you know, the basis of physical health, but I can't imagine how trying this must be on your mental health. So what advice would you give to anyone listening who is having to make these decisions now on how best to look after themselves, not just physically, but also mentally? I think when you're making those decisions, I think it's really important to make them as a team and not let one individual be responsible for that so that everyone can feel heard and everyone can have their say. I think understanding that you it's it's such an imperfect situation so you can't make a perfect decision um just making the best decision that you can out of some maybe very difficult options and also one thing that really helped me when I had some therapy after I came back um when I talked about feeling like I had had to kind of play God and choose whether people lived or died and how I found that so difficult uh and how some of the decisions that I made stuck with me um my therapist said you know you you were there and you did something and that's the way that you can look at it and just say and actually that that sounds kind of quite basic but it actually was really helpful just to say well I did something and I made the best choice best decision I could at the time because I think like I've been over and over some of those decisions before in my head and I think when I look back now with a clearer mind I can say yeah no I, I really did make the best decisions and I did everything I could. But just understanding that nothing is perfect in this situation. It's a disaster situation. Like it's a real emergency situation. So just doing the best you can is absolutely better than doing nothing. Exactly. So that is an amazing thing to say, because I think that the weight of responsibility, but to remind doctors and nurses that they're there running towards the fire right now, while the rest of us are hiding, at home, not hiding, but, you know, do it, staying at home. You're talking about the therapy that you had afterwards. I understand. Did you set up something for doctors and nurses afterwards when they came back from Sierra Leone? Yeah, so I... Um... When I got there, I had a supervisor who was based in the UK and I got to speak to her pretty regularly. And so I was able to talk to somebody about the experiences that I was having and what we were seeing. Because on top of what we were 
all all experiencing in the hospitals and so Nat in the isolation unit we were living life in a country that was being overtaken by this really awful thing you know we were living it all the time it what there was no real respite from kind of this barrage of of illness yeah and so I could see that the as we got volunteers out with the organization there seemed to be a real pattern with people's experience I was able to talk about my experiences with somebody who was detached from it and I found that incredibly helpful and I thought that might be a helpful mechanism for people to find ways of coping with the stress that they were in so through the organization that I was attached to in my previous role as a mental health nurse we were able to tap into the psychologists and psychotherapists in the trust and a lot of them offered distant support to staff that we had coming out to volunteer in Sierra Leone. So they would be offering Skype and telephone sessions to be able to, for people to be able to talk about their experiences. And then also as a follow-up, when they returned to the UK, they would have an opportunity to talk to that person for months afterwards, depending on how, how long they felt they needed it for. That's amazing. Casey, is that something you think that will need to be done now for doctors in the UK and I mean all over the place and is that something you're thinking about kind of coordinating now? So from what I understand there are in in the trust that I work for there are plans for that already but I think it's incredibly important. I think something that's also very different about this is that we're all going through this, we're all experiencing it, we've all got fear and so the people that are offering support are also scared and having some kind of like reaction to what's going on as well so it's I think even more it's important to tap into the resources that you already have and Nat and I were talking about we were talking about our experiences being in Sierra Leone and how I I remember really clearly at different points of time different members of the team had the capacity to support others and that really varied and some people needed more support and some people had kind of the energy to support more and that's really important to look for who has that strength to support at various, various times that you need it. Because all healthcare workers are going to be experiencing this, but as is everyone, everyone's everyone's scared. Yes, you're absolutely right. There is, everyone is sort of going through this together. But that really powerful thing you said, Katie, about how people will go through things at different times and people will be available to mentally hold other people. And it's so important that we all look for that and support each other at the different cycles of our trauma and grief. As healthcare professionals, we're so used to be the ones that give help and give support. And so sometimes it can be really difficult to accept support and ask for support when you're in that position. And I think it's so important that all the healthcare professionals accept the help that's being offered. I think we've had in the last week such an incredible response for people signing up to volunteer. They will be there to to support at the moment for those healthcare workers. And I think I would really encourage people to take up those offers. If you look at the five ways of well-being, which is looking at five different ways to support your mental well-being, one of them is giving. And so the process of supporting somebody else will be as helpful for that person's mental well-being as it will be for the person receiving the help. 
So can you talk me through the five ways of well-being, Katie? Okay, so the five ways of well-being, you can Google it. Well, we'll add it to the show notes as well. Yeah, I think I, I, I really like them. They they seem to be really basic and obvious, but I think they'll have to be modified where because we're isolating, we have to be social distancing. The first one is connecting with other people. And I think everyone's finding really novel ways of doing that, whether it's through, you know, all the different apps that are available or talking to your neighbour over the fence mm-hmm. from six feet away, where Whatever it is, finding a way of connecting with people, I think that's really important. Being physically active. There's, oh, we talked about Joe Wicks earlier. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about him a lot. He is, he is really getting me through the week. <laughs> I have to say, Casey, I did PE with Joe Wicks with my six-year-old the other day. And I literally have only just started walking properly again. <laughs> I, know. I, know. <laughs> I thought it was going to be this like quite simple thing for kids. And I was like, this will be fine. I run marathons. No, I was really worried about the burden on the NHS with people like <laughs> pulling things and straining things. Yes, be careful while doing PE with Joe Wicks, everyone. But I've got to say, it's very well known about the like positive impact of exercise. But my goodness, <laughs> it's my it's definitely given me a boost when I've been doing it this week. Mm. Learning new skills. I mean, if you're working from home and you have the you now have the time to be able to develop some new skills and they can be I mean anything from I mean really anything crafting to DIY or meditating or learning an instrument or whatever it is learning a new language there's so many opportunities now and now we've got the time to be able to do it so rather than kind of seeing that time in isolation negatively actually using it really productively the fourth one is the one I've already talked about about giving to others it can have a really positive impact on on both the person helping and the person receiving it and then something that's really talked about an awful lot about being present and mindful we've got lots of ways of being able to do that and people are being really generous with their skills and knowledge and, and making it public publicly available and for healthcare workers as well there's an awful lot of apps that are being made free so headspace is giving people i think access free access to their their platform until the end of the year so there's a, an awful lot out there that that can help you be more present and be mindful and and that and i've talked about detaching from social media and, and technology as well. I think that's really important to take breaks and being able to just stay present and observe and without having the distractions. And not not scroll through the news app and Twitter and people yeah. with sort of and it's I think I saw someone on Twitter describing it as terror scrolling the other day. Yeah. Um I wanted to ask you as well, both of you, is you know, there'll be loads of us who are not doctors or nurses or working in hospitals, but who have, you know, people in their, you know, friends or family who are. And, you know, I have two very dear friends who are, you know, currently working uh, on COVID-19, have been, they've been deployed to COVID-19 wards. And I kind of feel a little bit useless sending them messages going, hey, how are you? And what's that? Like, while well, I sit at home uh, twiddling my thumbs. How would you, what would you recommend to friends and family of healthcare workers and how best to support them at this time? Um, I think that's a really good thing to ask. Yeah, I think being a healthcare worker, working in this, uh, on this virus can be a, quite a there's a lot there can be a lot of fear around it and and I think you can really feel that you really are being put at high risk and that could be a really difficult thing to deal with and actually sometimes you feel like you're putting your loved ones at risk as well you know I've really been trying to avoid contact with people but I'm lucky because I live alone Um, but I know some people feel that they 
they feel like they're putting their friends and family at risk because they're a high risk person. And I think that can be quite a lonely feeling, actually. So I think just allowing people to talk about how they feel can be really important. But also, I think um, allowing them not to talk about the virus as well, because um, we're working really, really long hours at the moment. And it's all day, every day. Um, We're saying Mm. the word coronavirus or COVID-19 like 100 times an hour. It's all we're talking about. And sometimes I feel like, you know, being a person who's got uh, specialist knowledge about infectious diseases, a lot of people outside of my work, a lot of friends and family, ask me lots of questions about the virus, whether they should isolate and those kind of things. And actually, that almost sometimes feels like an extra burden as well. And I absolutely don't mind people asking me questions. Of course, I want to support everyone as much as I can. But um, I think just being aware that those people sometimes need to just also have a normal life and talk about different things. And I, you know, I've had some lovely messages from people. People offer me, offer me, they can do my shopping for me, or they can help me. And that's even if you don't want to take those things up, it's really lovely to be offered. And even, you know, the, the people clapping for healthcare workers. Some people said to me, "Oh, it's quite cheesy." I loved it. Like I find it really. Like I, I was like emotional. <laughs> were, there, were there some tears, Natalie? Yeah, I got were really there some emotional. Tears? And like, I think that's all people want who are on the front line personally. I'm going to clap, guys, guys, I'm going to clap for you both now, okay? I don't know how this is going to sound in a podcast, but... Thank you. And I want everyone listening to join in. Thank you. Natalie, I want to talk to you a bit about what you've been experiencing in the last week, um, working right now, presently, in the NHS, in the UK. What's it been like? Uh, Yeah, what's it been like? It's been really... Yeah, it's it's been really intense. It's been really busy. I think um, everything has moved really quickly uh, with the virus. And so people have had to step up really quickly. And yeah, I mean, it's been exhausting. It's been intense. It's also been um, quite amazing, actually, and quite touching how many people have come forward and, and stepped up. For me personally, it's been um, a really tiring experience. I think that's the main feeling that I'm feeling. I personally have tried to take a lot of lessons that I learned from Sierra Leone. Um, I went through physical burnout, physical exhaustion, proper, proper, full-on clinical burnout as a result of that experience. And I've could you t- could you talk me through? I oh, know, sorry, I don't want to like bring you back. To yeah, it, you can. Could you okay. explain some of yeah what what happened? So I really just like a lot of people out there. Uh, when I was in working in Sierra Leone, just felt that because it was such a such an um, a dire situation, um, such a serious situation that I had to just there was no there was no reason for me ever to take a break, and I would just work all the hours that were needed because of the situation was so serious. And as a result of that, and I think we all did that. I think um, so many people around me did that, and it almost became like a culture of people never taking a day off and just working all the time. And I think that combined with how, like I said, how traumatising it can be and how intense it can be resulted in me becoming burnt out just doing that month after month after month. And I've really, really learned from that, that um, as cheesy as it sounds, you do have to take time off, like you've got to. And you have to see that as part of your contribution because it's it really builds you up. I had Thursday and Friday um, as my days off. Uh, last week and that's the first time I've really taken a couple of days off over the last few weeks and I really needed it and I completely switched off like I didn't I mean the first few hours when I woke up on Thursday morning 
I started to feel quite guilty about not being at work, which I think is normal. And I thought about my colleagues and how busy they must be um, and how there would be extra work to be done because I wasn't there. And then I kind of shifted that mindset to kind of go towards feeling you know, that this is me contributing because if I have a rest, I'm able to sustain myself better in the long term and I can go back to work refreshed, ready for other people to take their rest and allow them to take a bit of time off and I can be an energised member of the team. Katie was talking, you were talking to me the other day about how you um, feel guilt because you're not yet working in the wards and all of that so that's a an important thing to say isn't it is that don't feel guilt because you will be brought in when you're needed and allow other people to get that valuable time of to, to rest yeah and that's something that when I was talking about the pattern of volunteers coming out to Sierra Leone that was definitely a pattern that that that's talking about people were coming in thinking I'm only going to be here for a short period of time I can work I don't need a break and very, very quickly they burnt out because the just the physical physical toll that wearing PPE in an environment that with humidity, really high humidity and high heat and without any kind of air conditioning or fans or anything and, and having, you know, to do really physical work, let alone the the mental toll it was taking on um, our volunteers. Um, it's so important to take those breaks and try not to feel guilty. I think guilt is going to come into it, but really what Nat said, acknowledging that this is going to be beneficial in the long run, that this is going to be, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. People need to to reserve some of their energy and strength um, for the later months because, you know, you're going to need it then as much as you need it now. Mm. I, I would love you both to come back on in maybe a few weeks' time. What you have said what I have listened to today has really helped me and I'm not a healthcare professional, but it's, it's allowed me to have some perspective. Oh, do you know what I mean? Like this is really awful. It is, it is, as you say, Natalie, a sort of disaster situation, an emergency situation, but it, we will pull through this and we will get through it. And you have got through this before. Do you know what I mean? And that gives me quite a lot of hope. And I think you're both absolutely amazing um and I'm just so grateful for what you're doing and I hope that what you've said will help other people listening both doctor nurses hospital porters you know it's everyone putting all the key workers I suppose I think one of the things that I I feel now is different to the one things I've noticed that I feel different to how I felt during Ebola was that um there's a lot of lovely things being said about healthcare workers which is great but I think I feel really kind of a, like a level of responsibility um, because people have been saying things like calling us heroes yeah. and saying, you know, support the healthcare workers because they're, they're going to save us all. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> what a burden, you know, to kind of say, right, they're going to get us through it all. And I think, um, and I don't think people should stop supporting healthcare workers. I don't mean in that way. I think speaking to my colleagues, we are feeling a huge amount of burden to basically get to solve this big problem and so I think just for those people who are feeling burdened I think it's important just to remember that just to remember that you're just part of something much much bigger than you and that you are a small part of a big thing and that you can only do what you can do and just you've never done this before you've never been through this before you're finding your feet and just to do the best you can in that situation and try not to think about that too much, not not to think about the burden, but just carry on the best you can, keep sensible. I think it's 
important to remember that we're all mm. different as well and that different people need to have different amounts of time off and and you know can work some people can work for longer and some people need to do things differently and I think that's fine as well uh, we need to be in touch with ourselves about how what we can do and be realistic and try not to feel the pressure from other people can I just say no I'm not going to increase the burden by going you're amazing <laughs> but you are and as I said, I, I, I just found this really informative and I, I hope and I'm sure it will help other doctors and nurses and hospital port and everyone. Every, it'll help everyone. And will you come back and talk to me again in a couple of yeah, weeks? Sure. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, You would love it if you were like, absolutely no, no, Bryony. Uh, we never want to speak to you again. <laughs> we'll come back in a few weeks and be like, oh, I'm so stressed. I feel awful. Yeah. <laughs> listen to any of my own advice scrap everything I just said no but I think it's a fast-moving situation and um and I think it's yeah. really important that we keep abreast of it and I really really appreciate the time that you have given me today so Casey and Natalie thank you so much you are superheroes even if that is increasing the burden on you I don't mean to but I do think it's really important so I'm going to give you one last clap Uh, thank you (laughs) before you go I just wanted to tell you about something we're doing here at the Telegraph we've launched something called You're Not Alone which is a collection of inspiring stories showcasing community spirit and helping you to stay connected to others One of my favourite parts of it is our resident psychologist, Linda Blair, who will be sharing her daily dose of calm, tips that'll help you slow things down in this fast-moving situation. Social connectivity is more important now than ever, and we want you to remember that you are not alone. Click on the link in the show notes for more details and go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld to get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300 one two three 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 nine three they're accessible 9am to 5pm monday to friday excluding bank holidays finally there's young minds who provide support if you're a parent or carer worried about a child's welfare they're on 0808 802 5544 that's 0808 802 5544 they're accessible 9am to 5pm monday to friday excluding bank holidays If you prefer text support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis text service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, a texter will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to them using trained techniques via text. And remember this, you are not alone. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 